This podcast is for information purposes only and is not and should not be construed as professional advice or an offer or commitment by any Rabobank group member to enter into a transaction. The views expressed by the presenter and or guest are their own and do not necessarily represent the views of Rabobank. Please see the podcast description for our full disclaimer. Welcome to Rabo Talks Growing Our Future, where we talk to experts from both here in New Zealand and across the world to bring New Zealand farmers and growers the information they need to make informed strategic decisions about the future direction of their business to ensure they continue to thrive in a fast-changing world. 80% of New Zealand was covered in forest before people arrived. Now it's only about 15%. Is it important for us to replant our marginal land? What's the best way to do that? And what benefit will we see from planting? Joining us today, we have the winner of the Kaitiakitanga Award at the Primary Industry Conference, Adam Thompson. He's the founder of Restore Native, and today Adam talks to us about his passion to restore native forest to land that is not suitable for farming. I'm your host this week, Katie Rodwell, and today we're going to explore the benefits of planting natives, everything from financial to being proud of your land, the cost of establishment, and bust some myths along the way. I hope you get some value from this episode and enjoy our chat. Adam, so lovely to have you with us here today. I'm feeling quite privileged now that you're a country calendar star. (laughs) Um, But I'd love to get started by getting some insights into who you are, how you went from being a mortgage broker into planting, I think it's about 1 million native seedlings. Yeah, yeah, not a star yet. Hopefully uh, they catch my good side. Uh, Still just the humble wear shorts when I should be wearing pants guy that you know. I was just (laughs) going to say, I I saw an article online and there's all these pictures of you and your CCC stubbies and I was cracking up. I was like, yes. Well, it's quite funny. The primary industry awards, um, someone did make a comment like, oh, he actually wears pants. He owns a pair of pants. Uh, You didn't go up on stage in your stubbies, thank God. No, no. Yeah, I think. Todd might have regretted sponsoring the award. If, um, <laughs> if, uh, yeah. Um, so, yeah, no, that, the change, it's an interesting one. I, I think, you know, I sort of say to people, like, we are all many things, you know, like I'm a squash player and I'm a dad and, you know, like, we're not just defined by the thing we do with our career. So I've always been really passionate about the bush and native trees, native birds, probably a little bit too young to be a bird nerd, but I am. Um, <laughs> you know, got into conservation, doing pest control and stuff like that, you know, on our own farm. And and having always been a farmer, the connection of those two things has is, is always kind of been in my mind. How do we get more native bush on farms? How do we protect more native bush? How do we, how do, we do that? So I was fortunate enough about five or six years ago to be able to buy a farm it was really run down and sort of like to look at it and take stock as someone in my early 30s then and go, cool, what do I want this to look like for my family long term? And so that was retiring a lot of marginal areas, planting trees, and, and it soon became to me, I'm like, oh, cool, my little hobby nursery of growing a couple of thousand trees a year is not going to work. And there are other people who need what I need. And yeah, just in typical fashion, just sort of like, let's go hard and let's see how many trees we can grow and and learn a heap of lesson along the way. And fortunately, had been doing it for sort of five or 10 years up to that point. So yeah, and then, I don't know, the transition just happened where all of a sudden growing trees was more of a thing than being a mortgage broker. It's the old like, do what you love, you never work a day in your life. But um, out there in the mud and on the steep hillsides and it's not easy work, but it's um, it's fun. I'm always smiling. Firstly, like, how did you identify what your marginal land was on your property? And then 
how did you know what to plant? Like, let's start there. I think marginal land's different to everyone, you know, and, and I look back at our grandparents' generation and, you know, what was marginal land to them was anything that maybe had a tree on it and they could cut it down and turn it into more productive mm. land, you know, like, like an, yeah. and that and that was the thing of the time. So, so I'm, I'm sort of loathe to sort of go, hey, it is this and it is that because we only know what we know today. Mm. And it's different for everyone, like you say, depending on their goals and that's it, you know. So so we've got a we've got a marginal dry stock farm, 175 hectares, mainly rolling to steep hill. And it's sort of like, well, cool, you know, we're never going to have the scale to be super productive. I'm like, but I want to do things really well. So I started off with a really simple, almost like a blank slate because the farm was quite run down. Um, We had to put new tracks, new fencing, new water into it. So it was like, cool, where can we drive a tractor? Where can we kind of apply fertilizer and crop? And and those areas that are highly productive, let's prioritize them. And then the things on the margin of those, we go, okay, is that still suitable grazing or is that like, no, that's not suitable. So we're putting a new fence line. So it's very easy for us to go, cool, we'll just avoid that really steep gut there. And that's great. We can retire that into native. So so for us, it's probably an enviable position. But now the experience of doing that and what works well and what doesn't, and now sort of five odd years of doing that for other farmers, you sort of start to get your eye in for you know, that approach. But I also think farmers know their own land really well. So there'll be people listening to this going, ah, yeah, I, I, I can see in my mind that steep face that every time I have animals there, it's muddy and it's, you know, there's sediment rolling off it. And yeah, if I retired, that'd be a really good environmental outcome. So that's probably the journey to identifying those areas. Then what to plant, you know, part of that's personal preference, but I think part of that comes from experience and what do you want it to look like in 20, 30, 50 years? You know, as farmers, we've got that intergenerational view. So we go, hey, it's not just about what that tree looks like in three years. It's actually, hey, what is this going to look like in, in 50 years? So, you know, we look around the Waikato and we, we have these quite defined ecosystems. We have these big swamps that grow a lot of kakatea and stuff. And, and then we have these steep hillsides. So we have a lot of tortoro and rewa rewa and, and, and certain species that we sort of go, cool, this is this is what that should look like. And, and in any area, there are those areas that we can go to and look at and go, this is what we want it to look like. So then our role in the nursery is how do we get it from today to that point, you know, and, and build it up. So I think no matter where you are in the country, it's a case of looking at what you want those areas to look like in, in time. Okay. And I'm just picking up on a point you talked about earlier around the environmental outcomes that you'll see from planting those natives. What are those environmental outcomes like? What What are the benefits to planting natives on, on marginal land? Yeah, so this is a really interesting one because it depends what's important for you. Like, It's very easy to look at that marginal land and go, hey, carbon prices there, we've got the mechanisms to go and make a whole lot of money, let's just plant it in pine trees. And and if making a financial return out of that marginal land is what you want to do, then that, that's probably the best thing to do. But if you want to look at, hey, I want my farm to be beautiful. I want to be proud of what I'm doing and, and, and the legacy that I'm leaving for my family. Um, you're going to be targeting areas. And for some people, that's all over their farm. There'll be areas. And for other people, they might go, hey, I'll do production forestry on this area out the back. But in these more visible areas, I want to have something that I'm proud of for my kids to pass on to the next generation. And I guess from a native tree point of view, it's biodiversity is a big one. So like I said, I'm a bird nerd. That's an obvious thing. We can look after the things that are uniquely New Zealand by cultivating those species and and bringing them back into the area, bringing the bird life back and the other life back into the area and really invigorating the land, the pride in what you're seeing in that future generations. And then you've got your clean water, clean air, those sorts of things. A really good example on our farm is that um, none of the waterways were really fenced. 
we fence a lot of waterways and source areas and and we've got a stream that flows through down the bottom of the farm by the nursery and and that was a muddy bottom stream five years ago now it's a rocky bottom stream literally like there's no more sediment going into it because we fenced these areas and excluded cattle and now we've had flushed big rains flush through and, they, and they've washed that sediment out but there's no new sediment being washed into it so the bottom of the stream beds drop by half a metre and all of a sudden it's like it's this beautiful stream. You walk in and look under rocks and there's life and, you know, those are the really tangible things, you know, that things like carbon and air quality and all those things are a bit wah-wah and I think as farmers we struggle to identify with them but those are the really tangible things you will see on farm, you know, and, and you will see birds coming back and, and those things as well, which is awesome. That's so cool to hear a tangible, as you say, a tangible example of an outcome. In terms of, I mean, I often hear that native trees are obviously quite expensive and incredibly hard to establish. What are some of your tips and tricks around planning and prepping and protecting of those plants? Because, like, if you're going to make that investment in your property, you obviously equally want to be investing in supporting it and making sure it survives. So what are some things that some farmers and growers could think about if they were looking to plant some natives? Yeah, it's the old proper planning prevents poor performance. Like It's identifying areas and not just kind of going, oh, hey, um, and I shouldn't say this from the business of selling trees, but not just being like, oh, here's a special on some trees. I'll I'll um, just grab a few and I'll sprinkle them around this area over here. You know, it, it's about identifying the areas. It's going, cool, where are we going to put our fences? Cool. How are we going to approach our planting here? What do we want it to look like long-term, like I talked about earlier? And then you go, great, to achieve that, what do we need to do? So it's site prep. It, it's clearing weeds and stuff out of that area. If you've got a, a rough face, it might have, you know, gorse and blackberry and privet and these other things on it. They're easy to control when it's in pasture. Um, you can spray those things and, and cut them, and, and it's, it's simple. Um, it's very hard to control those things after you put native trees in. The same chemicals that kill those things kill the trees. So it's that bit of prep those sort of things, getting it clear, getting it sight, and then going, cool, okay, we want to achieve this long-term goal. The way that native trees grow is sort of in two stages. You've got colonising species, so things like that we think of like manuka and kanuka that just come up like weeds, grow fast and, and provide coverage in an area. And then you've got your emergent species, sort of like your long-lived big forest trees, so rimu, kahikatea, tōtara, those sorts of things that are around for a long time. So, so you need to plant the right species to provide that environment for a start. There's no point going out and covering a hillside in Rimu because they don't grow in exposed areas. They're used to coming up through the shade and shelter of other trees. So it's simple tips like that. Um, you know, start with your colonising species, then look at how you're going to get those big emergent trees into it and, and get that long-term forest. Knowing what you want your long-term forest to look like, um, knowing what grows well in your area, and then you can get that start. So I can speak to what we do here in the Waikato, and this, this sort of applies for most of the upper North Island or most of the North Island at large, but it's a little bit different in the South Island. It's planting the right density, getting enough trees per hectare in. Um, a lot of people will cut corners on cost by trying to spread trees out, not understanding that native trees, like they need their mates, like they need, they need to be reasonably close together to actually be able to create that ecosystem, that canopy, that they're not a pine tree that you can just plant and it'll grow or a, an oak tree that'll just live in the middle of a paddock. Because trees can talk to each other, can't they? 
This is the thing. If I, I, there's, I don't there's know. There's a book I, about <laughs> trees can talk or something. Okay, yeah. sweet. Oh, sweet. I haven't gone too far down the, 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 the line. <laughs> you of, said um, they need to be mates, but I'm pretty sure there's some network or something where they're like, give me these nutrients. and. This is good chat. Have heard the same chat. Not quite connected with it. I, I don't speak that language <laughs> yet. And, uh, you know, we still kill a few trees, trying a few things in the nursery. So um, maybe I haven't <laughs> fully identified what, what we need to do with them. But, uh, but yeah, they're very much, you know, like look at what your long-term forest wants to be. Understand how you're going to get there. You know, you've got site prep. So, for example, we'll often spot spray. You know, we remove the competition of grass, then we plant, and then we come in through with a follow-up, you know, depending on the species and the, and the site itself. But, you know, to come and make sure that, those sites aren't being overrun with weeds or grass in the spring. Generally, in the North Island and, and most areas that are you know reasonably productive, that first season is all you really need to get that tree through, and then it will go. For the harder areas, you know, definitely known areas of South Island, you need a couple of seasons of not having those trees overgrown, release spraying, um, using tree guards and stuff, and even fertilizers to help sort of promote them along a bit. But they're not things, fortunately, we here in the Waikato, we, we don't really need to do because our growing season's so long. But every area is different, and that's where it comes down to. There's, a, there's an Adam Thompson in your area who you can talk to, get that local advice, you know. Is there though? Well, there should be. <laughs> um, that's a genuine question. Like, do we have enough kind of experts in the space on the ground? I've also heard that just getting quantities and, and being able to get seedlings can be quite hard too. Yeah, yep. So I think in parts of the North Island, there's an oversupply. But I think in parts of South Island, there's a, there's a major undersupply. And it's to do with those trees just being so much harder to grow and the different types of species that they need to establish down there. So I always say start with your council. Council Regional councils are really good. Most of them will have catchment management officers who will be able to come out and give you some advice. You know, they've got trained ecologists. They've got people who can help with that. They can also help with funding, support, and a lot of councils will. And then you can sort of link in with, you know, so if you don't immediately have an Adam Thompson in your area, you can, yeah, call the council and, and ask those questions. You know, we, we, with our business, we go out and visit a lot of farmers and spend a lot of time doing that planning. And that's probably, that's our thing, right? Like, it's that. I've done it on our farm. We can come out and have a look at it and show it. So, But in terms of costs, like we've done some stuff here, West Coast and the Waikato at quite wide spacings, like two and a half metre spacings. And we're establishing that for like seven or $8,000 a hectare into basically Manuka, Kanuka and Totara, and it will grow. Our pretty standard, we'd say, is, you know, you plant about one and a half metre spacings, a touch more, you can get away with up to two metres in some areas a fully mixed, like, you know, a dozen different species in to provide a good sort of bush mix. And in the Waikato, including supply of the plant, a pre-spray, planting, it's a post-plant care, it's around about $20,000 a hectare. So it's probably three times the cost of establishing pine trees at that sort of five to 7000 that that putting a pine tree in would be. But you're getting, like, all these other benefits, right? And that's it, you know, like I say, if it's a financial decision, go and plant pine trees, that's totally fine. But yeah, in terms of, you know, if you want to achieve those other things, yeah, natives are not as expensive as you think they might be. Mm, myth busting. There you go. And can you generate income from natives? I know that you can, but can you just talk to us a little bit about that? So natives had a little bit of a raw deal and, and I... Um, the poor cousin. <laughs> yeah, I'll get told off by the likes of Don Carson and the Forest Owners Association for saying these things. But, um, you know, carbon is the way you make money out of planting trees, essentially, in New Zealand at the moment. You know, so so when the when the whole carbon market thing started happening in the ETS and the 
forestry lobby, very well organised. Go and present to select committee. Go, hey, this is what pine trees can do for the world. Aren't they great? But people planting natives, like you know, it's just a collective of people who are passionate about what they're doing and, and passionate about all these semi non tangible outcomes of you know birds and you know clean streams and things that aren't hard to measure. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so natives got a really raw deal. Um, you're going to plant pine trees. It's twenty odd tons a hectare that you can claim in carbon. Natives, they say six and a half tonnes if you're using the lookup tables for the ETS. So, and all they've put in there is regenerating scrub. We're not talking about like specifically planted different varieties because obviously a native tree is 50 different things or 350 different things. You know, like it, it's it's not a single thing, so it's hard to measure. The good thing is is that now, like policymakers have realised that oh shit, we've actually given we've given natives a bit of a raw deal and this is where this biodiversity credit thing comes in and there's going to be more that natives will be rewarded for because if we started rewarding water and soil quality biodiversity as well as carbon well all of a sudden natives would be delivering just so much for our country as pine trees are you know pine trees are better at carbon but they're nowhere near as good at the other things so 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 yes you can make money through carbon yes there are some companies out there like carbon crop and and that who will try and look for a better secondary market for your native carbon credits um, and, and earn a little bit more money. But yeah, at, at the moment, we're getting a little bit of a raw deal. There's no doubt about it. And what's your kind of crystal ball gazing here, but what are your thoughts on the, the future of those biodiversity credits? Like I know even, like I've just been away for six weeks and just coming back in my role, the, the conversation around biodiversity and nature is huge. Like it's almost like that is the big new focus. So I'm just keen to hear your perspective on the future of like the biodiversity credit market and what, what that might look like. Yeah, yeah. I'm just a humble tree grower. I'm probably not a scientific expert, but, <laughs> but don't get me wrong. Like, like I am the uh, conduit for a lot of these conversations. Personal opinion is fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We have, we have, I have a lot of these conversations with farmers and economists and we have MPs and all manner of policymaking stuff visiting the nursery and, and we're having these conversations and and no doubt that chat around hey you know natives deliver you know they deliver better water quality they deliver better you know biodiversity outcomes we need to recognize those i think those winds of change are blowing as you say and and what i see in the future is some degree of um and unfortunately it's going to be a little bit more complex but you're going to be able to go cool a mixed native assessed at this level is actually going to be able to provide X, Y, Z, and whether that's going to be a biodiversity outcome or changes to the ETS to do more than just carbon or a secondary policy, I believe there's something out there on the horizon. From all the things that people who know more than me are saying to me, that sounds like that's going to be the case. So, And, and that's good because I think, you know, we need to encourage people to make the right decisions and, you know, a wholesale planting of exotic species is, is a benefit for people short term to maybe capture a bit of carbon and make some people some money, but... But if we're really thinking what's good for New Zealand, what's good for my family and my farm and, and my community, you know, it's farming the good areas and it's planting the unproductive areas. And, and, and I think that's what we need to achieve, that farmers can actually look at that rough hillside and go, cool, I can farm six ewes on there, or I can make a genuine return by doing all these amazing things for my country, basically being a patriot and planting native trees, you know? <laughs> yeah. Why would you not? Yeah. <laughs> Just a quick question, a little bit off topic, but not. Can you plant like exotics and natives together? Is it good, bad, otherwise? This is cool. And this is sort of something we've just, you know, probably twigged onto in the last couple of years. It's sort of gaming the system a little bit, right? So if the ETS is going to say 
30% coverage. This is what we're going to measure. Um, you go and chuck in pine trees or gums or whatever the thing is in your area that's going to grow fast and give you, you know, really good carbon benefit in the 30% of that hectare. And then you come and underplant it or, you know, infill the rest of the planting with natives. So you get that, you know, that real sugar hit of the the carbon coming, but you've still established a long-term forest. And, you know, once the policy settings sort themselves out and, hey, don't get me wrong, the pine trees will sort themselves out in 50 years and they'll start tipping over anyway, and you're going to have this really cool native regenerating bush. Um, And it's about getting the right species mix in. So you can kind of have any exotic that's going to work in your area, which is fine, but you need to have good, fast-establishing shrubs that are going to survive in, in that environment competing with pine trees who might be shaded out a little bit. Yeah, because that was the thing. Competition can be quite hard yeah. to like get that establishment, eh? Yeah, and you totally can. It's right species, right place. Um, and then getting like fruiting shrubs that are going to bring birds in and those birds are going to bring the, the seeds for those things that we talked about earlier, the remus and the cacoteers, and, and you'll get that succession over that sort of 50-year period. You know, the, the carbon credits will run out but then we'll be getting our big natives coming through who are going to keep sequestering carbon long into the future because they just keep growing for, you know, 500, 1,000 years, those, you know, big remu trees, which is just epic. Yeah. Okay, nice. And I'm just thinking about, like, what farmers would want to know if they were kind of not sure where to go next. Like, I mean, obviously talk to the council, find out if there was funding, but, like, what are some of the barriers or some of the challenges that they might come across if they were looking at integrating this into their farming system. Yeah, cool. And I think the hard thing is is that it's unique to every farm. It's unique to every farmer, you know. So every bit of land has a different set of requirements and every farm owner, they have a different set of goals of where they want that land to go over time. Definitely we see that, you know, there are barriers. So there's a knowledge barrier, you know, cool. How do we do that planning? Well, yeah, great. You know, businesses like ours can help. The council can help there. No worries. Um, there's a funding barrier. So it's like, cool. Well, we can't just go and do this all today. That's not possible. Who can support that funding? Can councils support it? What other funding is there out there? Um, and that's something we also help with. Um, so there's plant supply and the right species and good quality trees, you know, in the right grades. Like, because, you know, you can grow a tree as big or as small as you want and plant it, but it's like, What's going to do well on your site? It's site preparation. It's, you know, do you have the available labour to do the fencing and weed spraying and whatever else might need to be done? And then it's planting, you know, like um, who's going to plant those trees? And and, and a lot of farmers don't have all of the extra labour to go and put in, you know, oh, I've got this window in the winter or, you know, on the autumn, spring to to go and get these um, these plants in, uh, you know, so, so that's, once again, like businesses like ours provide a planting service. And then it's the post-plant care, you know, like, like a lot of that stuff is you need to go and you need to go and touch those trees. You need to go and release them, you know, whether it's pulling grass off them or spraying around them, you need to do that in the spring. And that's oftentimes the busiest time of the year. And, you know, so it's like, cool, are you going to employ a third-party contractor to do that or are you going to do that yourself? So so looking at all of those areas, you know, like, like for me, those are the barriers as a farmer to get those trees in the ground. And that's why we set out as a business to try and solve those problems, you know, like, it's let's try and solve every single one of those problems and then we're going to break down the barrier you know all the farmer has to do is have the desire to do it and you know the willingness to put some money from their farm budget into the long term you know which is shifting to go hey what is the benefit for my farm long term and doing that before we wrap up adam any key messages or takeaways that you want to share whilst you've got the spotlight yeah, it's a good Although question. Although you've had lots of spotlight <laughs> lately. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, look, I think it's really cool. I, I, we're starting to see farmers wanting to do this stuff. And, and I'm really blessed that, that I wind up dealing with the progressive people, right? The people who are going, cool, I want to be retiring my marginal land. I want to be doing better by the environment. I want to be doing better by my community, by my family. You know, so we're really fortunate to get to deal with these people. And, and that movement is really picking up momentum. And it's really cool. It's struggles in years like this where there just isn't the money around to do, you know, that like the amount of cancelled orders of trees we've had this year almost is the same amount of orders of trees we've had you know like, like people just like they want to spend the money but if it's not there you need to feed your animals but there's no doubt those people are going to do that they've got a 10-year plan they've got a 20-year plan so talking to those farmers who are out there they're on farm and they're kind of going like far out i've got a hundred little guts and gullies on my farm adam like i'm never going to be able to do this it's like look go and plant a tree, you know, like, like talk to someone, get a few hundred trees in the ground this year, get, you know, and just make a start. Start small. Yeah, because then you turn around in three years' time and you've got tui in your flaxes and, and your corfis are flowering and you're going far out, yeah, and and by that time the momentum's rocked you along and you're just, you're doing something great and you really feel that tailwind behind you. So, so yeah, no problem is too big and I think that's the thing for farmers out there is like it's always the ability to do something, it's something positive, it's something you have control over, you know, like, and, and we all get smashed around by the weather and the markets and all the rest of it. But um, to do something positive that you have control over as a farmer, it's just like, yeah, it's a really cool thing. What a wicked note to end on. How inspiring. <laughs> it's nice to have such a um, positive conversation. You know, it's it can be pretty tough out there and, you know, with the market right now and weather and everything you've just talked about it's nice to finish on that note around like you can have control over this and make a difference and and have a positive outcome for your farm and for New Zealand essentially. We are part of the solution as farmers you know and that's awesome that's a really cool thing to be. Thank you for listening to Rabo Talks Growing Our Future podcast. If you are interested in learning more about how Rabobank can support you to succeed into the future, please go to rabobank.co.nz.